Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. In the aftermath of the brutal and terrible calamity that was Pontiac's rebellion, the rugged and undisciplined communities of the American frontier rose up. Although often glamorized for their revenge-fueled ambitions, the Paxton Boys are now considered as little more than a reactionary mob of zealots. Driven by prejudice, frustration, and misinformation, a ragged militia attacked and killed a peaceful community of Conestoga Indians, showing no regard for their past history or present humanity. In total, 20 people were murdered, brutalized, and mutilated, including five women, seven men, and eight small children. While the colony of Pennsylvania debated over an appropriate response, the British Empire did nothing, and soon the Paxton Boys began to march on Philadelphia itself. On this episode, we talk about the Paxton Boys' Rebellion. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. In Season 3 of the series, we're discussing the American Revolutionary Era, the people, places, and events that defined it, and the political ideologies that gave rise to the world's first truly modern republic. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, Keep up with news, events, and appearances at my author's website, bradykreitzer.com, and of course your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. We've been beginning our series of the American Revolutionary Era not in the typical place, not on the eastern seaboard, not in Boston, not in New York, not in Philadelphia, not in Charleston, but in a place I consider to be equally important to understanding and unraveling the real complexity of the American Revolution, the American frontier. This will not be our last episode of the feature on the area. It'll be the last one for a while, because the story, like the entire revolutionary period, is very big, and much, much greater than just the year 1776. In our last two episodes, we've been really discussing the importance of the year 1763 in the revolutionary context, Not only because it's the end of the Great War for Empire, the Seven Years' War, but because in many, many, many ways, it's the beginning, or what is considered to be a beginning, of the American Revolutionary Period. Remember, something as drastic and radical and quite literally world-changing as the American Revolution doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in one year. It's a long building process, in my opinion that can trace its origins back to the decade before the 1770s, which we usually agree is the real heart of the of the conflict. So let's review a bit to begin, talk about why we're focusing on the frontier for these first three episodes, and what that can reveal about the revolution further. We began our discussion of 1763 from the British viewpoint, as one that is uh, an age of great triumph. The French are defeated, The British Empire reigns supreme. 
whatever the future of North America looks like, it is a British future. The British worldview has won out. But then we moved into a discussion uh, of the real, more practical concerns of not just paying for a war and fighting a war, but I think more importantly for the revolutionary period, how you handle the aftermath of the war. That is, we can say the British will win the war, but they will lose the peace. The British Empire is larger than it's ever been before. The British have stripped major pieces of French territory away from their enemy, all of Canada, which the British now call colonially Quebec, all of Florida, taken from the French ally of Spain, which, in order to govern it more effectively, the British have divided into two separate colonies, East Florida and West Florida. We'll talk about that in the future. They've taken away Grenada as an island, a Caribbean island, a massive, massive moneymaker for the British Empire. But the issue they're faced with now is how you govern it. How do you deal with it? And again, as we mentioned, their rules are not necessarily as flexible uh, as the situation probably required. The British had a one-size-fits-all policy for empire, and it was one that didn't work before 1763, and it's one that absolutely will not work after. Now, the biggest problems of the Seven Years' War is how you pay for the war. We know today in the Western context, in the United States, we've been at war, uh, or at least acting militarily in some way, for much of the last 15 years. Wars are expensive. That's as true today as it is in 1763. And we know that the British have suffered a serious incursion of debt as a result of this great war. The way they want to pay for that war uh, is by doing it in two ways. Uh, they want to raise taxes, which we'll talk about in future episodes of wartime, and they have to cut spending. And we've really been focusing on the spending cuts because it's the one aspect we really understand the least. Now, in the previous two episodes of Wartime, we've discussed how the spending cuts hit Indian America, the native peoples of British North America, especially hard, and how it forced them and agitated them into a state of open rebellion. Some will call this Pontiac's Rebellion. Tradition dictates and history we do. But as I mentioned in the previous episode, it's actually much more complicated and much more layered than just Pontiac leading an uprising. Uh, there's many different aspects of this in the Great Lakes region, the Pays d'Anneau, in the Ohio country, today western Pennsylvania and the entire state of Ohio, and in the Illinois country, uh, a peoples who had very limited interaction with the British in any way, uh, but were strong French allies. Now, what all those three places we've discussed have in common were that they were French allies in the Seven Years' War. Remember, the Iroquois Confederacy, the dominant, powerful Indian force of North America, was a strong British ally. The other peoples we've mentioned, the Ohioans, the Great Lakes peoples, the Illinois peoples, were all strong French allies. Not because they love France, but because a French relationship, a French alliance, gave them the opportunity to earn their freedom, in some cases, as in the Ohio country, from the Iroquois themselves. When the French pull out of the continent, when the Seven Years' War ends, they, they lay down their arms. They sign the Peace of Paris in 1763, and they evacuate the continent. But that doesn't say much about the native peoples who have allied themselves with them. In the Ohio country, in the Great Lakes, in the Illinois region, 
many of these warriors said, we were never fighting to defend France. We were never fighting to defend French interests. We were fighting for our own rights. We were fighting our own, in many ways, revolution. Just because the French have surrendered, that doesn't necessarily mean for them that they will too. And in many ways, the Ohio insurgency, the Great Lakes insurgency, or the Pontiac Rebellion was a direct result uh, of the intention of continuing the conflict of the Seven Years' War into a greater realm. So what does 1763 look like, and why is it so vital for understanding the period? Well, in 1763, those native peoples we've mentioned will continue the fight, and it will manifest itself in in a way that is uh, entirely foreign for most Europeans living on the continent. Remember, Indian War and European War is very different. Europeans really love to use the word savage to describe the Indian way of life, particularly the way that they fight. Uh, But we have to remember is that people, in my opinion, are not savage. Uh, War is savage. And when one perception of war doesn't match up with the opposition's perception of war, uh, then you have these very big disparities in lifestyle. And suddenly the differences between two peoples become much more meaningful and much more divisive uh, than the commonalities that they often shared. As we talked about in Season 1 of Wartime, many times on the frontier especially, European and Native groups shared such a common way of life, uh, it really was a uniquely American product. But in 1763, any ties that bound them were gone, and the frontier became a place of very intense passion, hatred, and mutual destruction. All across the frontier, uh, Indian warriors and Indian bands waged war on the victorious British, and they believed the way that they should do it was by eliminating uh, the main staple of British life in any place on the frontier. In the Great Lakes, it was Fort Detroit. In the Ohio country, it was Fort Pitt. But whichever region you're talking about, and in my opinion, the events are are both very different for each place, even though we often group them together. Uh, the mantra was very simple. Capture the forts, you end British occupation, from the Indian viewpoint, of your land. And that gets us to today's episode. If you recall in the last episode, uh, the attacks on Fort Detroit uh, by the Ojibwa, by the Ottawa, by the Potawatomi of the Great Lakes, uh, the siege of Fort Detroit, we can say, came to an end in a very unfortunate way for the native peoples. And you also recall, in the Ohio country, the siege of Fort Pitt also was broken uh, in a way that really crushed the Indian Rebellion uh, in many ways, in both spirit and practicality for the Ohio insurgents, the Mingo, the Delaware, and the Shawnee. But that doesn't mean that the entire insurgency ends, because just like rebellions in any empire, in any part of the world, still even seen today, very rarely are they cohesive experiences. Usually uprisings like this happen because many different groups focus on one common enemy or one common threat and execute a similar war uh, for different reasons. Now, the uh, we can say organizational heart of the rebellion of 1763, the Indian insurgency of 1763, will die at Fort Pitt and Fort Detroit. But that doesn't mean the spirit of the fighting and the individual desire to rid the land of British settlement ever goes away. 
And what you'll see is that even after those events, now moving into the fall of 1763, individual, uh, uncontrollable, independent, non-state actors, we can say, different warrior bands of different nations, will continue the war in some way uh, on their own. And more often than not, this manifests itself uh, in ways that are very painfully violent. And again, we discussed in previous episodes, we'd often think of this as terrorism. Remember, the definition of terrorism, no matter how you feel about it or how you view it, is simply political violence. That is, achieving a political goal through violent means. The Indian War, the Indian Insurgency of 1763, fits that to a T. Now, what I want to focus on in today's episode is really the so what of the last two episodes we've had. Uh, and that is, what does it have to do with the revolution? Well, we've talked about uh, the Indian insurgency, Pontiac's Rebellion, if you want to call it that, from the native perspective in the last episode. What I'd like to do today is talk about the repercussions it has uh, on white settlement and how they react to it in a, in a way you can imagine uh, is very painful and very violent. Now, before we can do this, we have to do a little bit of stage setting, and it's one of the great banes of the existence of the historian, is that we have to do it in a brief and succinct way. I've intentionally given myself about a 45-minute limit for each episode, because I could talk forever, as you could, I'm sure, uh, because the, the period is so fascinating. But we'll try and be brief. Uh, but we're going to go to the colony of Pennsylvania to understand this most. When you talk about the colonies that were most affected, by these uprisings, official colonies. Uh, you're really focusing on two. New York was very safe, for the most part, because the Iroquois were British allies, and they never participated in this insurgency. Again, it's an insurgency amongst former French allies. So the places that really suffered the most were the places that tangentially touched these very hostile regions. One was the colony of Pennsylvania, and the other was the colony of Virginia. Now, you did see this occur a little farther south into the Carolinas, but for the purposes of practicality and brevity, Pennsylvania and Virginia really took the worst of this action. And to be very specific, Pennsylvania, the colony, really suffered the most of the two. Now, to understand the reaction to this, and we're going to have some time to do it, so I'd like to talk about it. I'd like to talk about the uh, geopolitical and ethnic makeup of the colony of Pennsylvania, and a little bit of the history of the colony to show you why this reaction is so extraordinary. Remember, colonial America is much more stratified and much more diverse than we often think, and no colony, no colony was more diverse than the colony of Pennsylvania. The colony of Pennsylvania is founded in the 17th century uh, by a very wealthy Englishman named William Penn. Now, what you need to know about William Penn is this. He was a member uh, of a uh, radicalized but peaceful religious sect known as the Quakers. And the entire basis of the Quaker faith in the 17th century was the notion of the inner light, that is, all living people, whether they be white, whether they be black, whether they be Indian, whether they be Asian, whatever the British world would have seen uh, in the 17th century, or defined the world as, better said, in the 17th century, they all held this spark of God within them, uh, whether they realized it as Christians or not. So for the Quaker, 
they were completely nonviolent. Nonviolence uh, in their dogmatic beginnings was really who they were. Quakers were pacifists. Uh, that is, they did not believe in war. And for William Penn, when he saw these colonies being founded in North America, he really believed that many peoples, particularly the native peoples, uh, were being left out unfairly of this equation. So when William Penn founded his colony, uh, he called it Pennsylvania, that translates roughly to Penn's Woods, he wanted it to be what he described as a Quaker uh, kingdom. For him, it was described as a peaceable kingdom. William Penn truly believed uh, that whether you were English or French or German, whether you were Indian, uh, whatever, uh, you would come to Pennsylvania and you would be treated equally and fairly. And, and a lot of politicians will give lip service to that, but William Penn really truly uh, talked the talk and walked the walk. We call it the peaceable kingdom. Uh, William Penn shocked everyone whenever he gave fair land deals to native peoples. He really did a lot of incredible things until the year 1718 when William Penn dies. Now, when William Penn passes on, as you can imagine, uh, his children, uh, his next generation and his family, maybe aren't as benevolent, maybe aren't as sincere as William Penn himself. And sure enough, the colony of Pennsylvania, which was a proprietary colony, which meant William Penn could basically operate as he chose, so long as he paid an annual rent to the king, uh, was really his own kind of small fiefdom, his own kind of kingdom. Well, with that kind of power and a lack of the same benevolent spirit, uh, William Penn's uh, successors, all again in his family, um, really begin to uh, not abuse their power, but certainly operate on a much more political level and a much less benevolent level uh, than William Penn himself would have. And the people who suffer the most from that uh, are the people who were treated as equals for the most part, the native peoples themselves. Little by little, uh, many native groups are disenfranchised by the Penn family. The Delaware the Lene Lenape, as they called themselves specifically, really suffered during this time. Uh, their land was taken from them, swindled from them, we could probably say, uh, in land acquisitions that were a little shady, always benefiting Europeans, until they were forced to flee further and further westward, until they moved beyond the Susquehanna River. Now, the Susquehanna River is, sort of divides Pennsylvania in half, so to give you an idea of what that looks like. Now, at the same time, part of the draw of William Penn's peaceable kingdom were, was that individuals of differing religious faiths could live there and worship as they pleased, and they would not be uh, they would not be discriminated against, and they would not be punished for those beliefs. If you were a German and you were a Lutheran and you tried to move to say New England, uh, a deeply Puritan series of colonies you would have been forced out of most of those communities. Pennsylvania really was the first colony to truly offer genuine religious freedom. Uh, New Jersey wasn't far behind, uh, nor was Maryland, but Pennsylvania is the first. So because of that, many different peoples, marginalized peoples, from all over the, uh, the British world, kind of moved into Pennsylvania to have a fair shot, to live the way they wanted to, and to operate the way they wanted to. And what occurred was, again, a very diverse, uh, but also very divided population. As we see in most immigrant communities, many of these people, if they speak a different language other than 
the language of the day, uh, other than English in this time, will live in their own small communities. The Germans really isolated themselves out, uh, but they were allowed to live there as they wish. Another group that will move in, and this is very important for this discussion, uh, had a long history of subjugation in Europe, uh, and likewise came to Pennsylvania to worship as they pleased, but more importantly, to be left alone. And we call them the Scots-Irish. You might have heard that term before. Some people say Scotch-Irish, uh, some say Scots-Irish. In the basic traditional academic sense, we would say Scots with an S, but we're splitting hairs at that point. But one of the things about the Scots-Irish were, some of them called them Ulster Scots, were that they lived in Ulster County in Ireland. And if you know anything about the geography of Ireland throughout history, Ireland's been a very divided place between Catholics in the south and Protestants in the north. Uh, the Scots-Irish were basically moved from the British Isles into Ireland uh, for the purpose of being a buffer people uh, centuries before they came to America to separate the Catholics and the Protestants and really take most of the abuse from each side. Again, they were a marginalized buffer people. So they were never really treated as full citizens in the traditional sense. And when they came to Pennsylvania, uh, what had occurred was they came with a well-deserved, I would say, chip on their shoulder. They didn't want to come to Pennsylvania and live amongst other peoples uh, and, and mix with them. They wanted to live as they pleased, without the same old uh, common narrative they've seen before, being abused and being dragged down. So when the Scots-Irish came to Pennsylvania, what they did was moved into the west, not as far west as the Ohio country, across the Allegheny Mountains, but really on that fringe of those mountains, uh, because it was a land that was sort of mountainous, sort of empty, sort of unclaimed, as away from the heart of the colony, Philadelphia, and the Quakers, uh, Again, they didn't really care for the Quakers. They weren't there interested in, in being religiously homogenous. They wanted to be left alone. Uh, and they settled on this land. Now, this led to a very big problem. Uh, because the Scots-Irish quickly, by, say, 1740, 1750, developed a reputation in Pennsylvania as being troublemakers. Uh, they operated outside of the authority of the colony. They didn't play by the rules, they didn't pay their taxes, these kind of things. A lot of it was uh, bias, a lot of it was prejudice, a lot of it was stereotyping, but there was a very real divide between the fiercely Presbyterian Scots-Irish of the frontier and the more traditional English Quakers uh, of the east of Philadelphia. Now, as you can imagine, in 1763, when this outburst of Indian violence occurs, Who's going to take most of the damage? Well, based on the demographics and where individuals live, it was those Ulster Scots, the Scots-Irish, who lived on the edge of the frontier. And even though they moved there simply to be out of the reach of Quaker authority in Pennsylvania, what they soon found was that they were basically serving the same purpose they had served in the British Isles for centuries. They were a buffer zone between two hostile groups. Well, they didn't take kindly to that. They didn't like that. And they expressed their anger and they expressed their rage at a very specific group of people. To understand why the Scots-Irish will behave the way that they do, you have to understand a little bit about the politics of Pennsylvania. We won't go into it far, but let me just say this. If you think uh, politics are bad today, 
If you think political brinksmanship, that is, scoring points against the other party, is really a uh, sort of troublesome issue today, you're right. But it was also very bad in Pennsylvania in 1763. So here's the basic breakdown. Uh, Pennsylvania was divided between two parties. There was the Proprietary Party, uh, which was made up of Thomas Penn, the proprietor of the colony, the son of William Penn. And then there was the Anti-Proprietary Party, that's easy enough, uh, which was made up of individuals who thought that the Penn family had too much power uh, and it needed to be spread around more. Now, the Anti-Proprietary Party tended to be the Quakers in the colonial legislature. Because here's something very important. Thomas Penn, the big the big boss, he was no longer a Quaker. He, he renounced his father's faith. So there was a religious divide there. And we see the camps divide each other. And we see the Quakers, the anti-proprietary party, led by a guy you might know, named Benjamin Franklin. And we see Thomas Penn, uh, really at the, uh, at the head of this proprietary party, starting to fight. And they're starting to, rather than solve political issues of the colony, just try and score points against each other in really juvenile, immature ways, which again, we still have today. Brinksmanship in politics is nothing new. Now, Thomas Penn was no dummy. He knew that, as we, we could say as a conservative member of the colonial world, he'd need support uh, because you really can't win any popular elections or popular support uh, by saying, I'm rich and you're not, and you should vote for me. You need to row up the hoi polloi, to quote one of my favorite movies, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And the hoi polloi for Thomas Penn were the Scots-Irish. Because one of the things Thomas Penn believed in, at least what he expressed openly, was that we need as a colony to raise money to defend the frontier, to stop these Indian attacks. And of course, for the Scots-Irish, he was singing their tune. That's what they believed in. But remember, the Quakers, at a, at a religious level, and they controlled the legislature, uh, were pacifists. They said, we don't believe in military action. We don't believe in raising armies. And that was basically how the debate broke down in 1763. The long and short of it is this. The people of the frontier, the Scots-Irish, are crying, are demanding protection. The people in the legislature, who actually have the money to raise money and protect them, uh, are really dragging their feet, because they don't want to give either side a political victory. That's how it basically breaks down. Now, when you go further into it, you see pacifism, religious uh, pacifism, especially amongst the Quakers, wasn't as much of a realistic concern as simply hurting the other side was. But regardless of what you want to say, the result was utter chaos on the frontier because the Scots-Irish decided they would take matters into their own hands when the colony would not protect them. Now, when you look at how the frontier operates, one of the things you see is that there is a typical sense of lawlessness in most places. That is, the authority of the government on the frontier uh, is very limited, because most of the people who move there move to escape authority anyway. Um, and the real heart of the frontier for these Scots-Irish uh, was not the governmental building, or not the uh, the vote, or not the legislature, but it really operated on a congregational level. These people, again, were fiercely Presbyterian, something that cost them their lives when they were back in Europe. And because of that, they're very insular, they're very inward-looking, they're very suspicious of the outside world. So more often than not, the most politically powerful person amongst these communities uh, were the Presbyterian ministers themselves. 
And whenever a major political discussion or event would occur, it often occurred, as I said, on a congregational basis. Well, in 1763, in the fall of 1763, the Scots-Irish decided, um, and I, of course I use that term generically, um, that enough was enough. They were being attacked by Indian bands. If the colony of Pennsylvania wouldn't protect them, they'd do it themselves. And the man who really spurred this on was a reverend named John Elder. Uh, he was the uh, the reverend of a Presbyterian community in an area called Paxtang, Pennsylvania. Paxton, Pennsylvania. It's just outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania today. But in many ways, it was sort of the edge of English society, or at least British control at the time. So these were people that were more often than not taking a lot of the punishment of the Indian Rebellion. Their people were the ones being attacked and being massacred and being uh, brutalized during the aftermath of this war. And John Elder, uh, who would become known as the uh, Fighting Parson, uh, began to preach a very uh, particular brand uh, of sermon that really emphasized uh, hatred. It really emphasized putting down the infidels. He would read from Genesis. Uh, he would read from uh, the, the five books of Moses. Uh, whenever, uh, during the conquest of the Israelites, they talked about putting down the infidels and things like that. And of course, he used that to express his feeling of the native peoples. But what he did was essentially rowl up the Scots-Irish to take care of the Indians themselves. And the basic idea was this, find an Indian target and eliminate it. Um, the notion of the old saying, the only good Indian is a dead Indian, uh, doesn't start here, at least in terms of getting the phrase incorrect. Uh, but that ideology really begins here in a big way. Now, when this occurs, when these uh, individual groups of people just sort of arm themselves and begin to behave uh, as an army, one of the things you see is that discipline and order is never really part of the equation. I mean, what separates an army from a rabble uh, is discipline. You have officers at many levels to keep everything under control. But when you have a group of hotheads running around with guns, uh, especially during this time period, what you see is that there's a real disconnect. Uh, between culpability and accountability and action. So what you'll see is that these Scots-Irish will kind of, again, excite themselves up uh, and form themselves into a de facto army or gang, maybe is a better way of saying it, a mob. And they become known as the Paxton Boys uh, because of the area in which they live. Now, the Paxton Boys believe we have to find the Indians and kill them because they're attacking us. But remember, not every Indian community is the same, not even close. And if this was an organized army, they would have taken the time to ensure that old Indian allies would be respected. But this isn't an organized army. Uh, it's a rabble. It's a mob. This is, in effect, an uprising. It's an uprising against Pennsylvania. It's an uprising against the Indians of the frontier. But it's an uprising nevertheless. We call this event the Paxton Boys Rebellion. Now, when William Penn was still alive, going back a bit, remember, peaceable kingdom, fair land deals for the native peoples, you name it. One of the things he took care to do uh, was to give native peoples, especially weakened native peoples, um, very small but, but useful pieces of land that would ensure they would have a place to live in perpetuity. And he signed treaties, literally signed treaties with many of these people. Well, one of the peoples he gave a significant piece of land along the Susquehanna River, near what is today Millersville, Pennsylvania. 
was a group of Susquehannock Indians. And over many generations, uh, it really became a small community of families by the time you get to 1763. And they became known as the Conestogas. Now, the Conestogas were Christian Indians. They, they Anglicized. They became Christians. They had really good relationships with the people around them. And most importantly, to show you how marginal they were, there was only 20 of them. They were five women, seven men, and eight children. They all lived at this old land grant, Conestoga Indian Town, the, no, the locals called it, given to them by William Penn. And they had the treaty signed by Penn giving to them. It was one of their most valued possessions. All of the people around them knew them. They all liked them. Again, they were a non-threatening group of a peaceful family. Uh, really, it's what they were, only 20 of them. Well, the Paxton boys saw nothing of that. They were angry about the Conestogas owning land whenever they themselves had a lot of trouble getting official land grants. Uh, and they saw, most importantly, they were Indians and they were a weak target. On December 14th, 1763, the Paxton boys rode into Conestoga Indian Town. Uh, and fortunately for many of the Conestogas, they were out of the town at the time. Only six people were there. And they burned down the village. Uh, they killed the Conestoga that were there. And they did it under the pretenses of fighting the Indian uprising that was occurring on the frontier. Remember, the Conestogas had nothing to do with this. They were mostly women and children. Their village was destroyed, uh, and six of them were murdered at the time. Now, this was very troubling in the colonial capital of Philadelphia because, A, you have a major uh, incited uprising on the frontier amongst a group of people that aren't particularly friendly to you, and B, uh, one of the people that you swore to protect, the Conestoga Indians, a very peaceful group of families, has just been attacked. So what will you do? Well, the decisions made from Philadelphia, making this a very quick story, to take the remaining Conestoga and place them into jail in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, not far uh, to the east of, of their original land grant. And the idea was, if you can put them in jail, you can lock them in and you can keep them safe. Because the Paxton boys were out for blood. Again, this was a group of several dozen crazed maniacs in many ways. What was one of the most terrible scenes in all of American history. It occurs in January of 1764, just a few weeks later. But the Paxton boys soon discover, in their bloodlust, that the remaining Conestoga Indians are in the Lancaster jail. They go there, they attack the town, uh, and they force the people in the town to give up the Conestogas. Remember, at this point, the people in that jail are mostly women and all eight children. The Paxton boys will get the keys to the Lancaster jail. Uh, they'll open the cells. They'll drag these poor folks into the streets. And they'll massacre them. They'll kill them. Uh, they decapitate them. They disembowel them. Uh, they brutalize them. They rape them. It's a horrible scene. One of the most terrible scenes in all of American history. Uh, and the, uh, the Conestoga Indians pay the price in many ways, uh, for the insurgency of Native peoples on the frontier. The Paxton boys are clearly out of control. Now, you can view this in a few different ways. Again, when we talk about something like uh, an Indian attack on a white settlement, we always use the term massacre. And that's something that we'll talk about a little later in the in the season. But massacre was a very propagandized word used to really kind of paint the Native person as a savage. When white people attacked Indians, it was never a massacre. Uh, we use that word exclusively for Indian attacks in the colonial world, when again, it's all just one person killing another. It's all politics. 
Uh, but the Paxton Boys begin what we call the Paxton Boys Rebellion or the Paxton Boys Revolt. Uh, the fact that they brutalized uh, and, and, and murdered these poor people um, was never called a massacre. But in my opinion, it was one of the most savage things that ever happened on the frontier. Stepping back from the emotional aspect of it, when we see what's going on on the frontier amongst the uh, insurgent Ohioans, and we have the Scots-Irish retaliation, what we see is that the peaceable kingdom, the colony of Pennsylvania, uh, is really uh, falling under the uh, really terrible situation uh, of dual ethnic cleansing. Indians killing white people at all costs on the frontier, white people killing Indians at all costs uh, on the other side of it. Again, regardless of whether these were soldiers or belligerents or anything of the sort, this is the result. It's the end of William Penn's peaceable kingdom officially. Now, the Paxton boys become a serious problem, and over the next several weeks, they continue to grow and grow and grow, until a few weeks later, still in January, now 1764, they march on Philadelphia themselves. They say, the Philadelphians, the Quakers, are the reasons we had to do what we did. You wouldn't protect us. You clearly aren't operating in our interest. We will march on the colonial capital, and we will destroy it. They move into the city. Philadelphia goes into a total panic. Now, if you understand the layout of Philadelphia, you understand how this works. But the area that the Paxton boys will get to first is called Germantown. And that is separated a bit from the real heart of the, of the city itself. Well, sure enough, they get there. The city's in a panic. Uh, a delegation of, of politicians will go out to the Paxton boys, will meet them, and basically talk them down. They'll say, listen, you can't do this. The results will be catastrophic. We'll listen to your grievances and we'll help you. Sure enough, the person who led that peace delegation to stop the Paxton boys from destroying the capital of the American colonies was Benjamin Franklin. 1764. Benjamin Franklin is already in the mix. And it's why I say we have to begin in this year, because this is when we really see uh, this sort of scenario begin to break down. Now, we'll talk in the next episode about taxes and things like this, but let me continue the story of the frontier after this. When the uh, Ohio insurgency begins to calm down, one of the things you first see occur is that trade begins to reopen between the East and West, Fort Pitt being at the heart of the West, uh, and Philadelphia, of course, being the heart of the East. And many, many private citizens become very rich in the process. Now, the people of the frontier have very serious grievances. And one of the major grievances was the native peoples had weapons and ammunition and alcohol and all of these things that helped them kill white people. So if there's one thing the people of the frontier, that is the British citizens of the frontier, won't stand for, it's trading with the Indians and giving them those uh, very problematic commodities again. There's actually a law passed saying you can't do it. Well, sure enough, as these trade caravans begin to go back and forth, the native peoples, once again, get weapons, they get gunpowder, they get alcohol. And people begin to ask, where are they getting it? Where are they getting it? Uh, what occurs is now in 1765, yet another small uprising uh, that becomes a very big uprising on the frontier. It becomes known as the Black Boys' Rebellion, a year after the Paxton Boys' Rebellion. The Black Boys' Rebellion basically looks like this. One of the former uh, captives of the Seven Years' War, a man named James Smith, will lead a group of angry frontiersmen painting themselves head to toe in the war paint of the natives. That's why they call them the Black Boys. And began intercepting 
British goods and caravans uh, and taking them and going through them and destroying them and finding very quickly that those problematic commodities, guns, weapons, ammunition, gunpowder, uh, was still being traded to the Indians. It became a very tense situation. Anytime uh, that a trade caravan would try to reach Fort Pitt, James Smith and his black boys would capture it. Uh, and before long, the colonial legislature in Philadelphia had to make a declaration. They had to make it clear that this would not stand. And they began to arrest the individuals involved. We call this the Black Boys' Rebellion. Well, the long and short of it is this. Uh, the British officers who came to the frontier uh, began to lock up many of these black boys, so to speak, these uh, sort of British frontier rebels, uh, in many of the forts that connected Philadelphia to Fort Pitt, most notably Fort Loudon. And over a series of a year, this situation became very problematic, became very tense. Every time one of the black boys would be arrested, they would view it as the British government once again infringing on our rights as British people and not giving us the due process we believe we deserve. Now, they absolutely were getting it, uh, but it wasn't frontier justice, I guess you can say. So let me set the scene for you now. It's November of 1765, basically, basically, uh, almost two years after the Paxton Boys marched on Philadelphia. Now you have another rebellion, so to speak, uh, of angry white settlers as a result of what they believe to be a lack of protection from Indian attacks on the frontier. Many of the Black Boys Rebellion's key leaders, rebel leaders, in the eyes of the British, are arrested and held in a fort, basically in the middle of today's state of Pennsylvania, called Fort Loudoun. Remember, 1765. The Black Boys surround the fort as their comrades are being held inside. They demand that they're released. Of course, the British won't do that because it's about keeping law and order in their lands. And the black boys actually begin opening fire on Fort Loudoun in 1765. Now think of this. What connects the Paxton boys and the black boys' rebellion? It's that they believe they're not being served the way that they should. And rather than venting their anger and frustration on the native peoples attacking them, they begin to redirect their anger on imperial authority. They're not angry at the natives completely, but they're placing the blame almost entirely on the British themselves. 1765, they actually open fire on a British military fort, an official fort of the British Empire, the Black Boys' Rebellion. This is, by all accounts, the first time that angry American colonists open fire on a British military force. 1765, the Black Boys' Rebellion. This is a full 10 years, a full decade, before the shot heard around the world at Lexington Green in Massachusetts. We have British forces under fire, by most accounts, for several hours. The report from a witness said, quote, thousands of shots were fired. That's probably disputable. In the wilderness of the frontier in 1765, all stemming, from this notion of not being protected from Indian attack. So, what is this episode all about? The Paxton Boys' Revolt and the Black Boys' Rebellion. It's this. The end of the Seven Years' War caused, by most accounts, Pontiac's Rebellion, the Ohio Insurgency, the massive Indian Insurgency of 1763. And the people who took most of the punishment, uh, these sort of disparate British settlers on the frontier, believe that their rights as Englishmen 
were not being protected and the empire side of the bargain wasn't being upheld. They blamed their struggles, and they were many, on the British Empire. As I mentioned earlier, in the beginning of the season, the American Revolution is a two-sided coin. Yes, there's taxes. Taxes are an issue. We're going to talk about it for the entire next episode. But for the people of the frontier, taxes affected them in very little ways. Not enough, not enough, to raise their rifles against the empire they defended so valiantly during the Seven Years' War. What drove them to rebellion, what drove them to anger, and already in 1765, we're seeing shots fired at a British fort, was that fear of Indian attack, that idea that if I am British, shouldn't I be protected like a British citizen deserves to be? That anger, that anxiety was real. And whenever the patriot forces of the coast begin to talk about rebelling against the British Empire, if taxes were the best they could do, they didn't have an audience on the frontier. But when they talked about you not being protected from Indian attack, and there was a reason that line is in the Declaration of Independence. We'll talk about that too. Now you're speaking a language the frontiersmen can understand. If you are interested in the Black Boys Rebellion or the Paxton Boys Rebellion, there are a few really, really great books on the subject. I encourage you to go to Amazon, look them up, buy some books, support a historian. But these are critical elements, not leading directly to the American Revolution, like Lexington and Concord did, of course, open, open combat. But if you understand the American Revolution as an event that built over time, that was many decades long, You'll see very quickly, uh, it's a much more complicated story than we think. Now, you all have heard about the story about taxes. We're going to talk about it next. But as for now, don't forget the importance of not only raising taxes, but spending cuts on the frontier. We've already seen an Indian rebellion and a white frontier rebellion. The question is, where do we go next? On the next episode, we'll talk about the Sugar Act, the Stamp Act, and the mythology of taxation that led to the American Revolution. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.